On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Abacab. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory as we continue the Genesis catalog covering Abacab. we have to you know i was <laughs> i was contemplating all day long how you might precede abacab what would you say as we cover the genesis album abacab or would you say something like the the provocative genesis album, <laughs> or the transitional genesis album the minimalist the abstract the bizarre the abstract I, I, yeah so I, that's y- that's, yeah, that's, I, that's Tony's phrase for this, right? Mm-hmm. I, knew, I knew that um, it wasn't going to be masterpiece. No, nor seminal, nor anything of that nature. Mm. Singular? It, it is singular. I will give it that much. You know, but I, you know, I've, I've struggled for the last, you know, couple weeks thinking about this episode and this particular album and and what we were going to say about it. And one of the things and, and that I, I finally settled on, and Ken, this goes directly to your segment, is, you know, the greater musical context. Because now we're, you know, we're we're in an area where music is changing. And is it fair for us to just assume that Genesis will keep doing what they've always been doing when everything else is so different? You know, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not entirely fair to expect that. And given, you know, some of the some of the things that the band themselves have said in that that YouTube interview that at least I've seen, and Ken, I think you have, I don't know, Paul, if you've had a chance to look at it yet, uh, you know, they they Either they're really good at at retconning their own history, or this was a very deliberate move on their part. You know, Mm. however you want to say it, this album is different. No doubt about it. Well, I understand that they approached this album... They created, and maybe this is involved in the wikis. I don't even know where I where I got this. Probably just from watching YouTube videos. But they they moved into their own studio, so they didn't have to go to somebody's house or you know be on a time constraint. And they just m- built their own studio. They moved in there, and they didn't want to do anything that they had done before. And they purposely set out to be different and make songs that were completely different they, and they they succeeded why don't we why don't we get into the the context and then the particulars before we sort of delve into to some of the aspects of that because i think i 
I think a lot of this album can sort of be covered from afar <laughs> without necessarily mm-hmm. going too deep into it. So, so Ken, perhaps you would like to provide us some of the context of 1981. Well, um, we'll start with Duke in March 1980. Shortly thereafter, in May, Peter Gabriel III came out. Why don't we do the yay or boo game? So Peter Gabriel III. Yay! Yay! Okay. Um, Steve Hackett Defector is unknown to me, and I was a Voyage of the Acolyte fan. But uh, Steve Hackett's got a solo album. How about Yes Drama? Yay! How about Jethro Tull A? I honestly am not familiar with it. Okay, Kansas Audiovisions. Yay! There we go. There we go. Um, Alan Parsons Project, Turn of a Friendly Card. Oh, I will. I will say yay because that influenced me in my 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 childhood. That was uh, yeah. That was in the house on vinyl when I was nice. a kid. Uh, John Anderson, Song of Seven. Yay! That's a pretty good one. Oh, good. Okay. Rush, moving pictures. Yay! Yay! Whoa! Yay! <laughs> um, Frank Zappa, shut up and play your guitar. Uh, unknown quantity. Uh, yeah. Electric Light Orchestra. Time. I don't know time, but I'll say yay because Jeff Lynne's a odd genius. Mm-hmm. And then there's another Steve Hackett release called Cured, um, and and I wasn't. <laughs> Man. into this one either but Ghost finally se- september 1981 abacab comes out september 1981 and you know who was newly formed in 1981 was asia yes they were that's right and and bizarrely enough in 1981 queensrike was newly formed and aren't we I, I haven't checked the date on this and i don't remember but aren't we a year away or two years away from the first Duran Duran release. Oh, we're getting into serious pop territory. Right. But I, I, I put that out there as an example of, again, this changing landscape. I believe in the interview Phil made mention, and everyone loves to make mention that, you know, punk had already come through and destroyed everything that was good, right? Right. So, right. And so, and so everyone's reaction was to insert reggae beats into their song. <laughs> yes. Yes. Abacab is a prime example of random reggae beats coming in where people aren't necessarily expecting them or needing them. A month after uh, Abacab, uh, we saw Saga Worlds Apart. Um, so I don't know if that speaks to the, the pop bend in a way. Well, I have I have a couple things that speak to the pop bend of the day yeah. because this is eighty one. This is when I'm actually I think this was the year I first purchased cassettes. Ooh, and I and I did not have a, a, a true stereo yet. I was still playing on my. I think my mother had this old like you know black rectangle with like a speaker on one end and the cassette went into the other with the buttons. Yeah. And during this year, I purchased Paradise Theater by Styx, which is a pretty phenomenal album. And I will never, ever forget sitting by the pool with my cousins, um, Tim and Kathy, at the the pool at their Titusville Country Club uh, while I was vacationing with them uh, the summer of 1981. And while we were there, they, they had on the music box playing. It was a Sunday afternoon. It was Casey Kasem's Top 40. And the number one hit during my vacation 
was Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield. Ooh, <laughs> and I had I had working class dog uh, in there as well. So so that is the the pop music world that it would appear at this point in time that Genesis is ready, willing, and able to enter. Let's put a pin in that for just a second. Sure. One well also oh, a big sorry. shout out, a big shout out to friend of the palaver, Ray Parker Jr., who released A Woman Needs Love in nineteen eighty one. There you go. That may be the one I have. I don't know. I'll have to look at that. Abacab, as Ken mentioned, was released in September of eighty one. It was released on the label Charisma, as we've come to expect. Classic three-man Genesis, Tony Banks on keyboards, Phil Collins on drums and vocals, and Mike Rutherford on basses and guitars. Track listing, Abacab, No Reply at All, Me and Sarah Jane, Keep It Dark, Dodo Slash Lurker, Who Done It, Man on the Corner, Like It or Not, and Another Record. Abacab is the 11th studio album by English rock band Genesis, released in September 1981 by Charisma Records. After their 1980 tour in support of their previous album, Duke, the band took a break before they reconvened in 1981 to write and record a new album. Abacab is the first Genesis album recorded at The Farm, a recording studio bought by the group in Chittingfold, Surrey. It marked the band's development from their progressive roots into more accessible and pop-oriented songs and their conscious decision to write songs unlike their previous albums. Abacab received a mostly positive reception from critics and was a commercial success for the band, reaching number one on the UK Albums Chart and number seven on the US Billboard 200. Genesis released four singles from the album, the most successful being Abacab and No Reply at All. The album continued to sell and was certified double platinum in 1988 by the Recording Industry Association of America for 2 million copies sold in the U.S. The Abacab tour visited North America and Europe in 1981, recordings from which formed most of their 1982 live album and concert video Three Sides Live. In 2007, the album was remastered with a new stereo and 5.1 surround sound mix. Now, this is the album where everyone likes to point to the big turn in the road. Even in what I just read, they mention... Um, Band's development from their progressive roots into more accessible and pop-oriented songs. Okay, now, we have Man on the Corner, we have No Reply at All, we have Abacab. But I challenge anyone to tell me that Keep It Dark, Dodo and Lurker, and Who Done It are pop-oriented songs. <laughs> or even accessible. Even accessible. So... <laughs> You know, we, we had this dichotomy from here on out. Everyone judges these records based on the singles. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't tell the whole story of what these guys were doing. Mm. I mean, this, I... this is not a Phil Collins record. Okay, this is not No Jacket Required. No Reply at All and Man on the Corner could easily be on a Phil album. They, they could. Dodo Lurker and Who Done It could not be. <sighs> then maybe I'm a Phil Collins fan. There is. <laughs> well, I don't know that there's anything wrong with that, Ken. 
there, so there's a couple things that that um, are sort of in the. In, they're either transforming or they've transformed. But one of the things that I that I sort of experienced just in the last couple of days, as I gave this a few more listens, was it just struck me that it's almost impossible at this time for Phil Collins to sing anything that's not a hook. Even even his verse melodies sound like a hook. And mm-hmm. it's incredible to me. And, I, and they're part of his, you know, they definitely, the one thing, and I don't, and I, I'm really not prepared to, to, to compare his solo stuff to, to this, but, but there is something happening here where, you know, Phil Collins has come into his vocal style that he's going to sit in for the, the next decade. And they figured out how to record it. They figured out how to make it sound good. And it's just complete. I think it's completely different than we've ever heard on a Genesis album. And so I think that also lends itself to that idea that, oh, Phil Collins has taken over and it's all these pop songs and everything. But the melodies are much more catchy, if you will, I think. Even on a song like Keep It Dark, I think it's one of the best melodies on the whole album. The verse is great. It's it's ter- it's song itself, uh, I don't know. But the verse, the melody just gets me every time. Ah, keep your joy to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you know... <laughs> So it's interesting. One of the things that I watched this week, and it will apply more in the next episode, but there is we there's a video that seems to be taken mostly by Phil on Phil's video camera of them recording Genesis. And we've heard the stories about, you know, the at this point, from this point forward, the band writing together and, and, and jamming and seeing what works. We've heard about them using drum machines so that Phil could could improvise vocally. There is a section in that video, and again, we'll, we'll have to tie it in to, to that particular show notes, but it really, it's amazing the way these guys actually worked and the way this this jamming thing kind of comes together. It's, it's, it's stunning that they ever wound up where they wound up with these songs, but there's one section in particular that I remember seeing where they're going through home by the sea and, and Phil is, he doesn't have any lyrics. He's just sort of vocal scatting around. And I think Paul, that's how maybe how he winds up on these hooks everywhere. Because he just kind of bebops around till he he catches some sort of a, of a of a melody that that seems to fit, and then I think they build the lyrics around that. Is is my interpretation? It was it was illuminating to see how that that whole thing works, and, and it's not at all how I would have pictured it. That's interesting. I'm I'm definitely interested to uh, to hear that. Uh, it's it's like the ham and eggs. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's ham and eggs, scrambled eggs. You know, the saying goes that Paul McCartney had a 
uh, melody in his his uh, head, but he had no lyrics, and he was sitting down to breakfast, and he was having scrambled eggs, and he just went scrambled eggs, <laughs> and and you know, and started writing the uh, the melody to um, yesterday. Um, interesting. Yeah. Oh well, that that that, that segues to my. Green Eggs and Ham. I'm, I'm borrowing Theater Seuss Geisel, otherwise known as Dr. Seuss. And uh, please allow me here. Yes, please. I do, do. not like this abacab. <laughs> I do not like percussive jabs. It's cold, just like a concrete slab. I do not like this abacab. I do not like with Sarah Jane. I do not like it on a plane. I do not like it with reggae. I do not like it very much today. Bill is acting like a ham. I do not like it. Can I am? <laughs> <laughs> well done, Ken. Well done. Uh, obviously, on the last episode, I lost my business on the beauty that is Duke. Um, this is not Duke. I have a hard time marshalling the same level of enthusiasm. And I basically have a love-hate relationship with this album. Um, in some ways, I will be provocative. And I will say that I have always imagined or thought of this album as my Genesis Tormato. In that, when I'm not listening to it, I think I hate it and I put it on and I like more of it than I would have maybe remembered, but like everything is tainted for every good thing I hear. There's something that drives me straight up a wall and I, you know, I, I just don't know what to do with this album. This is so not fair to Tormato. <laughs> 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 well, Tormato will get its day in the sun. But 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 seriously, you know, I, I put this on and, and I, you know, it opens up with Abacab and you're going, yeah, all right, cool. And then you've got that end jam on Abacab, which never goes anywhere. And you're like, what the, f what, what a waste, you know? And you're going through and you're listening to some stuff and you're kind of, okay, that's oh, whatever, you know? And then like, Dodo starts, right? And the freaking opening of Dodo blows my mind. And then eventually they do something that just, I'm like, oh, God. You know, Phil starts singing in this deep voice talking about fish having hooks in their throat. Shut up! Shut up! Oh, that's the only part I liked. Which, that's the whimsy. Well, and, and bingo, Paul, you got me. That's where I was going. What does Abacab have in great quantities that Duke <laughs> did not have at all? Genesis Whimsy. whimsy. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what drives me crazy. Every time, you know, Phil or the guys sort of break out and, and you know, have a little fun, let their hair down, I my skin starts to crawl. And I feel terrible for saying that. But that's, for me, I think that's what it is. And it's interesting because I think those are the moments that, like, I agree with you. The, 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 the musical outro of Abacab has got to be, like, the most boring three minutes of, of what I'll call classic rock of all time. I mean, it's, it's one note on the bass. 
and there's just not much going on there. It's terribly boring, and I usually skip through it. Really? Um, yeah, it's just like I agree with Joe. It goes nowhere, and well, you know, I only I mean, fault it first, for the, the first time I put the album on. I listened to it, but then after that, I'm like, I'm just I just hit the skip button after after the song's actually done because it's just. But I, I, my point is that even even though I don't like it, that's the that's the progressive rock band in them right just jamming it out yeah and yeah. That, the whimsy in dodo they... lurker is when he starts talking about that and he's like this is what he said to me yeah. <laughs> you know the the duck comes in and everything and i mean it's it's silly but it's the it's the progressive progressive rock part of right. the band coming through you know it's it's their Dare I say, sound chaser? Is that appropriate? That, I don't that know. sounds like an episode <laughs> right into itself. Sound chaser versus dodo lurker. Well, it's the same year as drama. So let's talk about dystopian. Do they do they nail any of that? No, I don't know. I think Man on the Corner is is for me the darkest song on the album, and there's some darkness here. But it you know there are so many hooks. It, see, but Man on the Corner is dark, but it's not dystopian, right? I guess that's because true. Because it, it's, it's grounded in a reality, which is why I think it's so powerful. For me, Man on the Corner evokes a distinctly Eleanor Rigby vibe, which I love. Mm. It sort yeah. of paints that that isolated person, which I just think is, it's relatable. It's, it's powerful to me. Um, but I don't know that it's, you know, the world is completely fucked up type thing. I think yeah, it's, I, I, yeah. So no, I mean, I, I, I think, I think in Dodo they were going for dystopian, but the whimsy crept in and it kind of blows the whole facade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to embarrass myself. Um, does he say Darth Vader in in that song, or is it some other word that I that my over the decades my mind has refused to understand what it really is? He does not. He does no. not. It sounds an no. awful lot like it. I want to say it's Dark Bater, like okay. baiting darkness. Yeah, um, which meant, makes sense. Which I, it makes a lot more sense when he says after it, agitator. Yeah, because I'm like, well, you know. Darth Vader wasn't an, an agitator. He was a badass Dark Lord of the Sith. He really was. So, but um, okay. So maybe we can cut that part out because now I just feel like a, a total well, I, jackass. I, I I think a lot of people have that have that thought, and it's it's. I mean, it's right in the middle of of Star Wars time, so it it would work. But, Actually, it was just a few months after Empire Strikes Back right. uh, was released. See. Which was in May of 1981, which is sad that I know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, uh, Ken, by the uh, way, yeah, your but playlist is fucking awesome. I listened to it last night going to bed. It <laughs> is righteous, dude. Imagine doing a practice to that. Yeah, Unreal. So um, I want to bring in not Star Wars influences, but musical influences. Uh, this is the age of the synth, and Tony talks about his Prophet Five and the bizarre sounds he came up with there. But um, I thought, you know, Gary Newman had Cars, and then before him was Kraftwerk. So this is clearly the the new wave synth age. 
So deserves a mention. Yeah, and you know, so this is part of for me the thing that makes this album. I guess I'm okay with it, right? Not not that it really matters whether I'm not okay with it. Is it? It's incredibly transitional to me. When you think about what's coming, what what ends up coming after this, and where they're coming from, and the the intention that they had, they they basically said flat out, "Okay, we're we're making a change. We're, we intend to do something different." And like those sounds are, you know, they're experimenting, they're having fun, they're doing different things that with the sounds, and Tony is too. And it's odd to me that my favorite sounds on this album are like the soft organ sounds, like all this great keyboard and synth stuff the best shit he's coming up with is actually, you know, just the, the quiet organ on man in the corner or the, uh, on the verses of Abacab. Um, and the cool sounds that are going on and no reply at all. It, but it's all kind of moving somewhere. It's, it's finally, we have an album that is produced as good as anything, if not better, actually, that's than what's on the radio now and what's being produced and they're really moving in a direction that is going to mature in the next couple of albums from a production standpoint, from a songwriting standpoint, from a arrangement and instrumentation standpoint. It's interesting you mentioned that, Paul, because in this um, in the the video on on the Genesis. There, there's actually a conversation, I believe it was between, I don't know, it was between Hugh and, and one or two of the other guys. And they're, they're talking about the, the sonic peculiarities of the board that they have in the farm or they had at that time in the farm. And it was really interesting because Phil comes in at the end and says, oh, yeah, it's got, you know, a, a, it's got a definite sound. So, you know, I think that became part of it. Like they, they sort of embraced you know, whatever, whatever characteristics there were of the equipment that they had. And they just said, this is us. Maybe they just did, you know, they, maybe they couldn't get another board in there. I don't know, but <laughs> the, the farm interesting. is interesting. It, the, the farm is much more like, um, Paul Stacy's studio <laughs> than, than it, than it is Stephen Wilson's studio. So, just wanted to put that out there. You know, one of the things that I found amazing in that interview that, that really kind of shook me was, you know, the, the three of them talking about this album and being so completely unapologetic about it. And, you know, hearing Tony talk about who done it, I mean... I, let's be honest. I think that song is atrocious. I think it's painful <laughs> to listen to. I think it's annoying as crap. And and Tony is sitting there admitting all of that and laughing about it and saying, you know, I was just wanking around constantly in the studio and the guys figured the only way to get me to stop it was to record it. And then when he says that, that you know, Phil ended up coming with a vocal line that was more annoying than what he was doing, you're just like... And and he's got this big smile on his face. I mean, wow. like, that's what I said. These well, guys, these guys knew what they were doing. It's amazing. At least he's accurately describing what we all experience when we listen to that song. God, but they did the song live. That's I, what. <laughs> <laughs> all of these songs are better live. Uh, 
Several of them made three sides. I don't, live. I don't think Who Done It could possibly be better live. <laughs> I mean, that song is just dumb. <laughs> that is a dumb song. Me and Sarah Jane, you can catch live clips of that. You can catch Dodo Lurker live. And they all sound better to me. If there is one sin in the production on this album, it's overdoing the gated verb drum sound and 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 plowing in some aggressive keyboard sounds with it and just being ham-fisted very heavy when they didn't need to be and when it's alive the drums are slightly more acoustic and the keys are in their place Hmm. and they actually sound like music some of these tracks it's a little better you know and it's interesting because you want to lay that at the feet of of hugh pedram right but as Maybe I forgot to note it. I don't know. Um, the 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 production credit is Genesis only. Hugh is given engineering credit on this, so I I don't know necessarily what that actual relationship was. Um, it makes me like you a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> but don't credit me for production. But but clearly, you know, and 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 Tony again mentions the the gated reverb, which I thought was an odd thing for him to mention when he's talking about the album as a whole, but you know, it, it could very well be that everyone was just so jazzed with this new toy and, you know, Hugh and Phil being, you know, the people who came up with it. Maybe they did go a little crazy. I don't know. I will say whatever else is going on. I love the sound of Phil's ride in Abacab. I just, I dig mm. that. <laughs> well, Abacab still has the characteristics of, of a, slightly more acoustic actual rock band on a stage or in a room sound to me. Yeah. And I love, I love the ending and that Paul, you can trash that all you want, but that could be a a soundtrack to my teenage years, the outro to Abacab. I think it's brilliant. I think it's good um, discipline between Tony and Mike. It's a good conversation between the two instruments and, Mike is responding to the keyboards and just, I, I think it's got a really good vibe. I mean, maybe yeah. it's just a commercial bed or maybe it's just a, an instrumental, but I, I think it's, it's, it's very characteristic of the age. It, yeah. I mean, it has at a risk vibe. of contradicting myself. Yeah. It just doesn't go anywhere. It's, it's boring. It's my problem. That's, and, okay. And I, I think that points to a problem. So we haven't really been keeping track of this, right? But there is sort of this, ongoing knock against Genesis with regards to them not writing ends to songs. Hmm. Every track on this, with the exception of Who Done It, has a fade out. And I would argue that the end of Who Done It doesn't count as an ending either. I was going to tell you that about Heat Haze. Heat Haze is a fade. It pisses me off because it could have been a real song. Right. So, mm. you know, and, and I don't know what that is. Like I said, I, we, I haven't been keeping track of this up till now. I don't know if this lack of ending sort of evolves naturally from this, this jam writing thing that they're doing or, or what it is. But it's, it's one of the sort of little things about this album that annoys me. Huh. I have a theory. Please. I, that's, well, that's I the think they... I think they like the flexibility live to invent new endings to get the right segue to get to the next song. I think 
that's one thing that they do creatively. I think that's giving them a lot of credit on this. I mean, I don't know. You know, Genesis has the has the reputation of of you know growing their their fan base via their live show and and being you know a, a live act. So maybe you know, I don't. It seems I think like it's when in Rome they're still like inventing new endings and segues and whatnot in one of those videos. Yeah, I, I just I I think maybe it's it's being a little. Um, a little overly gracious to suggest that they they limit the studio recording for the ultimate benefit of touring with these songs. But yeah, I think, you know, I think in the case of the song Abacab, they probably were like, yeah, let's just jam out at the end and we'll just fade it. And the jam turned out to be so good for all the reasons that you mentioned, Ken, that they're like, oh, well, yeah, let's just keep it. We'll fade it out at minute seven, you know, yeah. instead of instead of minute four, <laughs> and um, that's kind of what it sounds like, you know. And it, it just it just sounds like, you know, at the jam. Well, you know, I guess I mean it. I mean, it is what it is, right? It's like Rutherford looped whatever keys the song is in C. I don't know. He just looped that dun dun dun, and then picked up his guitar, and they just jammed for four minutes and it was so good they kept it um Th this album does have the worst bass lines of any oh well before we say that <laughs> i mean, I mean other, other than track two I mean. thank you that fucking song is a bass masterclass. come on dude no reply at all the bass is just it may be the best bass line of 1981. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is it is a smoking bass line, absolutely. Because, you know, you, you, you want to sort of get lost in the horns, right? You've got all this brass in your face everywhere. and But once you sort of get past that, you're like, oh, holy fuck, this is a groove right? and a half. <laughs> exactly. I remember seeing that video, and I was lost in the horns. Like, I just was like... You know, and I remember seeing the video, and I want to say the, the memory in my head is Mike is like sitting on a stool, and he's just got like a dumbass smile on his face, <laughs> and he's just wailing on the bass, and I'm and I'm watching the video, and I'm going, "Holy shit, he's playing that on bass!" Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's not a bad tune. Uh, um, it doesn't belong on this album. It doesn't fit the style of the rest of the album yeah I, 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 I think that's a that's a very fair statement mm -hmm. but you know here again it so at this point right you know Phil is is just sort of starting to establish himself as as Phil um, and so it, it's easy in hindsight, to say that Phil was taking over the band because, you know, but, but Phil was learning how to write songs the way Phil does. And, you know, to, to his point, and he covers this again in the interview, he said, you know, the song already sounded R and B. So we wanted to put some horns on it, shake people up. It's our, it's our record. We'll put horns on it. And, mm -hmm. you know, at this point, if, if they had done this on invisible touch, I think it would have been it, it it could have been received very differently, but 
well, and maybe you will get there. I'm not even going to go there yet. But but the the point is at this point, it it looks like Phil is taking over the band. But I think, you know, again, Mike and Tony are in the room. Mike and Tony have to sign off on putting horns on this track. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, all of there's on, only "Men on the Corner" is is the individual song that Collins wrote. According to everything else, they all wrote everything, and maybe that's just you know the, what the way they're going. But yeah, I think you're right on, Joe. Like, there's you know no reply at all. I think the reason it's so good is it's because it's Phil being Phil, it's Tony being Tony, and it's Mike being Mike, and it's coming together, and it's fucking great. And then someone along the way says, "Hey, let's uh, let's get the drums, the uh, the the horns going," and um, you know, it it's something different. You know, I, I don't think we've heard horns like that in a Genesis tune yet. So, I mean, no, we heard them. We heard them on behind the lines on face value, right? <laughs> That's true, and I like them much he better here. Yes, than on that incredibly so. I, I understand and I appreciate now much more what they were trying to do on this record. And, and again, the fact that they're so they're so upfront and and they're they're almost joyous about it. I, Phil and Tony, maybe more so than Mike in the in the interviews, but certainly those two guys are almost defiant about this album. Phil gets this look on his face when he tells the story about, you know, when they went out on this tour and started performing songs from Abacab and people would boo them. And he's like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I would have booed who done it too, but that's, yeah. that's a whole different thing. But, but the point is, you know, while I want to, like I said, this, this album kind of drives me crazy, but the fact that, that these guys they're, they're just, they're owning it so much. <laughs> they're just saying, we wanted to do something different. So we were just scouting around to do something different. I mean, they, it, it's different. You got to give them that. It's their 11th album. I think they're allowed, uh, you know, a little <laughs> well, experimentation. And, and, and that's something that Rutherford said, you know, Rutherford's got a quote in that, in that, um, in that interview as well, where he says, you know, I couldn't imagine at this point playing the same things we played in the 60s and 70s. He said, I'd be bored silly. So, mm. you know, let's let's give him some license. Maybe it didn't land exactly the way we would have wanted it. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I personally don't. I don't vilify this album as, you know, the the the, you know, Genesis driving off the the commercial cliff because I just don't see it that way. Well, in, in, in real time as uh, just uneducated 11 or 12 year olds, we weren't necessarily blown away by this. I mean, if it, I think I was, you know, buying rush on cassette, we talked about moving pictures coming out. Um, it, 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 I mean, it, it was clearly hitting a, a pop audience. And Paul, you just said you were into uh, sticks during this period. Joe, what were you into when you were 11 and 12? When I was 11 and 12, I was listening to probably a lot of ELO, and I was starting to get into the fix and the tubes. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was just all like old people music. The no reply at all, or yeah. or easy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you know, so I, I don't know if this is. I think this is along the lines of of what you're saying, Joe. Is that I, I've never thought about these albums as them, you know, driving over the cliff to you know sell out and be commercial and everything like that. But I do. I think now, after knowing these albums for many years, and then and then going back and doing this exercise, going from the beginning all the way up to here, I I, I do see how. It, you could you could understand i mean i guess i i understand people you know like tom who loves early genesis i can totally understand his perspective when he just sort of shakes his head and dismisses you know some of these sound, songs and some of these albums i don't know that they drove off the cliff but it's it's kind of like they you know they you know grab some carabiners and some rope and they started scaling down the side of the cliff you know nice and slow um you know, and and I think about you know at, at this time frame, you know, my three older sisters were in the in the heyday of collecting records, and they were into like the Carpenters and Barry Manilow, and and you know they they bought Rush uh, Hemispheres for the trees because everybody liked that song, and and you know what Genesis albums do you find in their collection? You find Duke because they had the song Misunderstanding, and you have Abacab because they had three hits on that one. Yeah. And those are the only two in their vinyl collection that I still have of Genesis. And, you know, imagining all of those people who followed the band in all of those times, you know, even just even just through Trick of the Tail and, um, you know, through Wind and Withering. And, and then there were three to, to hear this. I, I kind of understand where they're coming from, although I don't necessarily agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, it. it it's always the question, right? What's it, what would it have been like if you were, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 in 1981 and you've been listening to Genesis from, you know, The Lamb or before um, and, and you go to the record store and you bring this home and you put it on. What, you know, what do you think? Because it's, it's you know, markedly different. And we talked about this with Marillion, right? After you have sort of the 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 magic moment, and one of one of two things can happen: either you try to stay on the same track, and the next one isn't quite as good, or you try to change things up because you know you can't follow up what you just created. Um, you know. Uh, I will point to, as an example, as a, as a parallel, going from, and make sure I have this right. No, I don't have it right. Never mind. Cut that. But, but think about when Marillion... Were you going to say going from Signals to Grace Under Pressure? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yes. <laughs> no, I was, I was going to say... Um, I was going to say "Brave to Afraid of Sunlight," but um, uh, that yeah, that doesn't work. This as strange well. engine is in the middle of that, isn't there? No, "Brave" and "Afraid of Sunlight" were back to back. Oh, "Brave were they? Of Sunlight." I mean, "Afraid of Sunlight." But a- like "Afraid of Sunlight" and phenomenal. It, it is phenomenal, but it the best. It sounds <laughs> it sounds different, in my opinion. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I see what you're saying. I, I think sonically it's a bit different. Yeah. But I don't. I don't think the character of the band it, quite it's, change, it's, changes it, there, except in that Alien Surf song. Yeah, um, it's it's not quite as dramatic as this. But but again, yeah. you, you've got Genesis saying we want to do something different. So I don't know. Um, yeah, the other thing too, which is uh, you know. You think about there are probably a dozen progressive rock bands that are in the same place where Genesis is at the time of, and then there were three. Maybe it's better to say at the time of Wind and Withering, where there's not really like a serious radio play or anything like that. They continue on going, going, you know, kind of recapitulating that same progressive style, that same album over and over again. And they are in the dozens of bands that I just don't have a good grasp on, right? They're probably phenomenal and whatnot but similar to yes uh, um with abacab and the uh, subsequent albums guys like us who may never even have um gotten into genesis or had you know really do dove deep into the the old genesis this is what this is what came about i think i said last time like when i heard I remember seeing the video of like man on the corner, the live video. And there's just this really memorable moment when Tony banks is, he's playing the soft part and he like pushes a couple buttons on his keyboard and he starts playing the heavier mm -hmm. sort of um, distorted type organ or, or synth. And it just blew me away. I, I just, I don't even know why it was just like, wow, he was so calm, just like changing the sound and he's playing and there, you know, that's a commercial song, but it's not very poppy. It's not a real pop song. And there was, like I said, there's always something that seemed a little different about Genesis to me in these early days when they had a song on the radio. It didn't, it wasn't like Rick Springfield. Right. Nothing um, like it. Yeah. And so, so th these were the seeds that were planted that, urged me many years later to go back and say, wow, what was that song, Supper's Ready? I want to go hear that album and, and start digging deeper into the collection because these songs are what got me to go to the concert, even though it was really Ken who drove <laughs> me to the concert. Yeah, Ken! <laughs> you know, the, 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 we already talked about perhaps the greatest parallel that happened at the same time, going from Tormato to Drama. What? <laughs> Why? Mm, right. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, that that must have been shocking. Now, again, it it wasn't quite the same, but in terms of of the difference from one to the other, it, it's probably fairly similar. And as I recall, drama, the band resisted the urge to integrate reggae into <laughs> drama. <laughs> they did seem to resist that urge very well. So here's the here's the the best thing about reggae's influence in popular music in the '80s, right? It came in, it sort of interrupted the normal progression of things, and everyone thought this is great, and everyone made such a big deal about Rush using it for like four bars in a song, and it starts popping up all over. The police were doing crazy things with oh, reggae. Spirit of radio, okay? Yeah, yeah. And um, and then you know it sort of culminated into you know past the duchy and 
uh, UB40. And then it just went along its merry way and left, left popular music alone. And it g- gathered all of the people who wanted to listen to reggae all the time. And it said, here, come over here and listen to reggae. Because mm-hmm. I don't think you, you, you get much reggae past that. And I will say this. UB40's Rat in the Kitchen is a phenomenal album. It's fantastic. And, well, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I'll, the only reason I say that is because, you know, I like not having reggae. I like reggae not taking over the, the world the way that rap sort of came in and sort of did this hip hop thing. And then instead of it moving into its own genre, it just basically permeated, took over popular music forever. Okay. Well, we've got the timeline of progressive rock. Uh, maybe we need to consider the timeline of progressive Copeland. <laughs> <laughs> meaning Stuart Copeland. The, the, the police started up in 1977. And uh, I, 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 w- I would credit Stuart for influencing drummers. And we all know the story. Apparently, um, Stuart played hi-hat on a Gabriel album when Gabriel had not previously allowed hi-hat. Mm. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I'm just going to say the, the police are responsible for the phenomenon of which you speak, Paul. Yeah. 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 And then it moved on. Love Stuart Copeland, by the way. Just want to put that out there. So um, none of the songs on Abacab, none of the songs actually use the song form Abacab. Correct. A-B-A-C-A-B. None of them. Right. They talk about that. In the video. Yeah. Yeah. That that was a preliminary just moniker for them to memorize that. The, the practice version of it. But right. It, Apparently, it, at one point, it was Abacab. And as Phil said, the way they ended up playing it is unpronounceable. Yeah. Wow. But, but it's, it's a lot it's, more basic, I think, than, than that. But I will say He doesn't have scene, great diction, so a lot of things are unpronounceable. But he the, sings so well, it doesn't seem to matter now. The C, part, the C part in many of these songs is the best, the best part of the song. The C part in Abacab is the with a little... You know, well, you got it, you want it, and there's some tasteful <laughs> China Boy hits going yes. on in that part, uh-huh. which we haven't really that. talked about Phil Collins' use of the China Boy. Um, it's delicious, and he's he's getting like Neil Peart circumstances accents on there that are just delicious, and um, and I want to say that you would consider. Like Phil puts the the China boy. I think he puts the China boy where Jay does, even though he's a lefty. Oh, puts so it high up you would you would side. think it would go yeah. on the other side, but I think he actually had it on, uh, on on that side. I feel but like also, this conversation is the album cover. We're just randomly piecing together random colors, and we just can't control <laughs> it. It's it just, is kind it, of like that. It permeated this album. Permeated our psyche. We're kind of like a Andy Warhol abstract fucked up. Yeah, this isn't this isn't flavor, man. This is this is killing us. <laughs> well, I, is it though? I mean, I honestly, Ken, I don't know what to do with this record. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I could I could go through this song by song, and I would end up just you know making myself angry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. 
Well, 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 it sounds like we're going to have to save ourselves from Avocab. Uh, which song do you hate the most? <laughs> Just dish. <laughs> Go wild. Oh, well, clearly, it, it, Who Done It is, is the one you, I, I hate the most. It's annoying enough. I mean, it's just, it's, I think it's unlistenable. And the fact that they played it live is just like a big fuck you to everybody. And, and like I said, hearing Tony describe this, they knew exactly what they were doing. It wasn't like they had some idea that they had, you know, they, they were expressing, you know, modern angst through whatever. They weren't even, there wasn't even a pretense for this. They knew it was annoying. Tony made the noise to be annoying to his bandmates. His bandmates recorded it just to get him to stop. And, and, and everyone knows that it's an annoying piece of shit song. So wait, you, who done it? Yes. Why? Okay. So 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 th that's the one that's in a slow six, right, Paul? It's in like a six four. Um, the funny thing is, it's like he does. Phil does groove on that eventually. It, it's um, it disturbs me because the beat itself could have been groovy. And they chose to make it as square and rigid as possible. And if you want to be craft work, be craft work. If you want to be can, be can. But this is just the worst of all of those influences, just in a stiff, jammed up, kind of contorted fashion. And he finally goes to the ride later on and they keep it in six, but it's just it just kills me that that they don't that they don't turn it into breathable, livable music. Keep It Dark is just as bad. You know, keep, I don't think it's just as bad. Yeah, I, I don't think Keep It Dark is, is just as bad. It, it's not great, but it's not nearly as bad um, as, as Who Done It. Yeah, the only thing that makes it, uh, well, you know, the, the main guitar riff is cool, and it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit reminiscent of the opening track of, um, well, it's kind of reminiscent of previous Mike Rutherford tracks, and it certainly hails a signal of what's to come on future albums. Um, and the melody's terrific, but you know, the song is just kind of it kind of just devolves into nothing. The uh, you know, for me, the highlights, you know, are the first three minutes of Abacab, no reply at all. And um, the man on the corner, you know, and and I like the melody of of um, of keep it dark, and the rest, the rest of it, the rest, you know, are really not. And it's it's odd that you know the highlights for me are the hits, right? But it seems like you know, but they're good, right? They, those those are the best songs on the on the record. A couple of things with regards to that, I always. Much like Turn It On Again, I always find myself rocking out when Abacab the song comes on. I absolutely, positively just get off on Phil's use of the maracas in that, which is a dumb thing to say. But when he brings those in, it just, it's like the the, the secret spice, right? Wow. That, that just, ugh, I love that. Um Sometimes I find myself drawn to me and Sarah Jane. Not all the time, but sometimes it will get under my skin. 
uh, in a good way. I do like, as I said, like you know the 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 opening in certain parts of Dodo Lurker. I like, and and yeah, I'm with you. I mean, Man on the Corner. It's it's there are a lot of these songs that are you know in the air tonight parts two, three, four, whatever. Yeah. Um, but but they're good, so I'll forgive them for that. Ken, what are the highlights for you? Okay. So I, I do want to give a shout out to one track on here just because it has potential. Uh, it's horrible in this rendition. That's Keep It Dark. Uh, it's in six. It's like a 6-4 kind of a thing. It's got the and, farting keyboard sound. Yes, yeah, it does. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, it's, it's just... just Tony with Profit Five from Hell. I just wish it would go away. But it, it, um, eventually, <laughs> if if you sit there and listen to it, eventually Phil brings in the ride and turns it into a song. Um, and 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 like you were saying, Paul, uh, Phil is great with the melodies, even on top of all this nonsense and rigid, programmed, horrible crap. He is still crooning the melodies, and I feel like you know keep it dark if it didn't have so much whimsy and crap in it and if they would have grooved it out could have been a really fun slow six and he kind of grooves it later in the track but i hear that and it's like oh dollar short and a day late like oh thank you for the ride butthead um but it's got it's got it's got potential and lurker i really like i i, I can't put up with dodo uh, but Lurker does get me in a good spot. It has a lot of potential. It's way better in the live versions. Um, um, I went down the rabbit hole with song facts and song meanings and looking at people talking about Dodo Lurker. Is the Dodo um, an animal that's being exploited and then killed by mankind? And is the Lurker a submarine because the flip side of the other release is, is submarine? And you go down that rabbit hole and it is so shallow and stupid. I got nothing out of it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but musically and with vibe, it, I, I get some sketches here with potential. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there there are there are parts to Dodo Lurker that I love. There are parts that I hate, which just it annoys me. Why can't you just give me the good parts? Yeah. One thing about um, Man on the Corner that I wanted to bring out, because we all know that I react to certain lyrics sometimes, and in this particular case, like a monkey on your back, you need it, but do you love it enough to leave it? I love that. Yeah. I, I, you mm -hmm. know, I, every time he sings that, I'm like, I get kind of goosebumps. Yeah. What? And I get goosebumps on Invisible Touch when it talks about um, the monkey and tonight, tonight, tonight. There you and go. You can debate that. You can debate that all you want. I'm, I'm, I got guns blazing. <laughs> well, that's that's a couple episodes away. What? I'll be sure to ice up the Bud Light for that episode. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it was Michelob. <laughs> Okay, then, then I'll get the Michelob going. <laughs> Does we have not mentioned at all the last two songs on this record? Yeah is 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 that by accident or is that because they are completely unmemorable? 
just too exhausted to observe <laughs> any more of this by the time I get to that point. Another record like has potential. They didn't develop it, and it, another tune that would have done so much better on an acoustic album. See, I think another record is is a fill song. I think this is something that would have fit mm. on um, "Hello, I Must Be Going," for example. It because it just it, it there's just something about it that just doesn't fit in in the Genesis milieu, but. You know, there it is. So, and and I want to say, do I remember this correctly? It was in the the Abacab interview on YouTube, where where Phil craps all over, like it or not, in terms of his performance on that. Hmm. Mm. I feel like like it or not is a leftover from, and then there were three. And it was abacabicized. <laughs> I, I, but that's I not honestly, all I have to say about it, really. I, I have it's no idea. Good. I mean, those two songs, honestly, just they confuse me a little bit. Yeah, um, to me, they f I just feel like they're like these might have been the first two songs they got into the studio and they just started screwing around with stuff. They just never really come together for me, I, you know. And maybe it's just because they're at the end of the, the album and I'm experiencing abacab fatigue at that point. Yeah, I don't think Like It or Not gets anywhere close to And Then They Were Free. So. Just said it was a leftover, a scrap. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's melodic, it's sing-songy. I, I see what you're saying there. Boy, it's, if it's, somebody's listening to this who really loves abacab... Oh, I feel bad. I'm. We. I. I, I and, we're gonna get it. Well, and, and you know that's totally cool. I'm sure that there are people out there who absolutely love Abacab, and you're right. They've either a turned us off, or they're b yelling at whatever device they're listening to us on, going, "Why don't you guys understand? It's this." And please try to explain it to us. Yeah, because going, I, you fucking idiot. He didn't say Darth Vader. <laughs> with you. Shut up. You know, I just no, 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 no. They're not going to be. It's whimsical contradictions. So, so they are the person who loves Abacab is intelligent enough to know that it's all just a big sarcastic joke. <laughs> and and maybe that's just what I don't like. Like I said, I I, I have my problem with with Genesis whimsy, and there's an awful lot of it here. And mm. you know, I mean. Again, maybe I'm wrong, but my interpretation, Duke, very, very intense. I can only imagine the, the tour and, and all of that, you know, very intense. And then they come back and they, they now have their own place and they can kind of, you know, let their hair down a little bit and, and relax and, and you know, just do whatever they wanted to do. And maybe they just wanted to take a, take a breath and, and relax a little bit. And not be so heavy and whatever. So I, and like I said, the the fact that they they own this so obviously, I I I respect this album a lot more after seeing their thoughts on it than I did before. Um, it's just it, and like I said, it I, I 
I don't actively hate it. I mean, I, I can very easily listen to this record. And it's not like, it, you know, I'm crawling. It. Okay, let's draw another parallel. <laughs> and let's piss some more people off. It is not open your eyes to me, for example. Hmm. Hmm. I agree with I agree with that because it because you, you're right. There is a certain point where, and I think Joe, we experienced it driving to to Austin together, <laughs> where I said, no, 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 we got to listen to Open Your Eyes. It's there's some great tracks on there, <laughs> and like by track four, I was like. Uh, this album sucks. I'm taking it out of this play right now. <laughs> like it was, it was kind of unlistenable for us. But I, I don't find that with with Abacab at all. I put it on. I listen to it. I listen to the whole thing. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. and, I, and like I said, the fact that they're they're so upfront about just wanting to do something different, and when you when you've done the same thing for however many years and and ten albums. Maybe you don't even know what different is at that point. Mm. It, it, that's yeah. that's got to be hard to mm. do, you know, to just, you know, take that left-hand turn and, and try to teach yourself new things and try to write songs in different ways. And, you know, I, it, it's got to be hard. And it, it took a certain amount of bravery to do that and to put it out and to perform those songs live. I mean... These guys have got great big brass ones, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I totally respect them for that. I, yeah, I think respect is a is a really great term for this. Like knowing what they were thinking, knowing what they did, and knowing that they actually executed it. No matter how you look at it, good or bad, you ha you have to have a certain level of respect for the fact that they put this together. Yeah. Think of a. Uh, um, P Peter Gabriel's Intruder. Um, I don't remember Games Without Frontiers. What do you think sonically happened in between uh, Peter Gabriel three and in uh, uh, the head of maybe Hugh Pagnum? Pagnum. Hugh was probably just happy that Phil was allowing himself to use symbols. Mm. <laughs> I, I mean, there it, it, there are a couple of years in between those, right? So. I it's only one year. Um, okay. You know, and, and maybe that's the other part about this that we haven't really touched on, right? So you have you have Genesis who are now starting to, you know, make some music. I'm not going to say all their music, but make some music that is accessible. They're having successful singles. They're 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 trying different styles you've got you know phil has has sort of emerged as a songwriter decidedly different from mike and tony with regards to his his apparent love of r&b and his his you know complete lack of fear of doing things like putting horns on a genesis track but while that's going on you sort of have the ghosts of Peter and Steve who are marching along, you know, dare I say this, carrying the artistic flag, right? Because they're not having that. You've got Peter outlawing 
symbols on his records and mm. and coming up with creepy ass songs like Intruder and or you know extremely powerful anthem songs like Biko. Um, I don't honestly know what Steve was doing at this time, but my guess is it was probably you know pretty pretty artsy. And and so you you, you know it's almost like these three guys. They're they're fighting with their own history as a three piece, but they're they're fighting against the larger universe of Genesis at the same time and trying to, you know, figure out what they want to be. I I like that, Joe. I, I would also add around the Sonic piece is that Hugh Padgham's been at it now for you know for a few years, right? You know, he accidentally discovers the sound, you know, but. It's that's not like the first thing he's ever worked on, right? So he's working with a lot of bands, and I remember specifically watching a documentary on XTC that um, is—I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it is really interesting and a lot of great uh, conversations with um, Dave oh, Gregory. Left my uh, my head, Dave Gregory, and um, Partridge, and the other guy, Andy Partridge. Yeah. And they talk about how they were, you know, they were kind of a sloppy punk band and they were starting to get a little bit more, you know, into uh, sing songy because the third guy whose name I can't remember comes in and he starts writing all these cool songs. Um, and they meet up with Hugh Pageant because apparently XTC and the police were touring all over Europe and England all the time together. And the, they were in amazed with the drum sounds that Stuart and the police were coming up with and they introduced them to to uh, Hugh and Hugh brought you know that great drum sound that he had to to uh, them and so here you have a situation where he's already an accomplished you know drum engineer and, and producer and I and I think he's just working a bunch and you know they find it on accident you know on Intruder and those tunes and by the time they finish in the air tonight, they've got it pretty well mastered. And then, you know, there's 10 degrees of going overboard on Abacab and, um, and many other albums, you know, throughout, throughout the, uh, the decade. But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, situation. It kind of blends to what you were saying last time, Ken, about how the drums were just so hot in the mix and, you know, Phil was, you know, not, I don't think you said taking over the band, but the band was becoming more of Phil. Um, because the band of, was a vehicle for Phil to be a superstar. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I feel like if that's the case, right, um, you know, Hugh Pageant was probably the best producer for them to, to make that happen, to get Would them. you believe, sorry, uh, but yeah. Dave Gregory hooked up with Andy Partridge six years into XTC. I didn't realize yeah. they started yeah. back in 72. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll eat our lunch on, on, on XTC and circle back later. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definite nice segue because I noticed that uh, Dave Gregory played on Melty Face, Peter Gabriel 3. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. That's the connection there. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's awesome. I mean, it... Yeah, Peter Gabriel three is oh god, that's such a great album. It's it's just stupid how great that album is. 
Mm-hmm. And then how do you get Abacab? You know, just, just goddamn it. <sighs> how, do, how, how, how do we, how do, how do we put in a pin in a train wreck, Joe? Tell us, help us. Uh, well, I, I... coming up next on Progressive <laughs> <Labyrinth>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think we just have to accept Abacab at face value, huh, pun intended. <laughs> that hurts my belly. <laughs> that was really good. I'm happy with that one. Uh, we just We just have to accept it based on you know, what, what they said about it. And, you know, it, it, maybe it isn't what we would have asked for, but I do think it was an important step in them sort of freeing themselves from, from the arc that they were on. They, you know, let's, let's geek out here for a second. Right. So, one of one. What do you mean for a second? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> We've been geeking out for three years. So one of one of my one of my favorite series of books is the Frank Herbert Dune series, and the uh, whole idea there is, you know, there's there's a specific trajectory for humankind, and and one of the characters in one of the books, in, in fact, a couple times, the characters say. I need to change this and I need to do some drastic shit in order to get us off this path. And, you know, it, it ends up being actually the, the greatest book in the series. Um, and so that's what these guys were trying to do. They, they saw history repeating itself and I'm going to project on them and say, you know, we, we did as good as we could do with Duke and we, need to do something different and there's going to be a disruption when that happens it it doesn't mean that it's there aren't good things here because i think there are some really really solid good good parts here you still have three excellent musicians um learning how to do things differently and you know i i don't think you can downplay the emergence of phil as a full-on songwriter here I think that has an impact and they need to figure out how to blend those together. I think this album in some ways is is uneven, right? Because I they're trying to do something different. You've got Phil coming in and, and all the pieces don't fit. By the time we get to the next record and Phil has put out a couple of his own solo records and I think they as a band sort of have a better understanding of how all those how all the, the parts then fit together as well as the overall music landscape. And I, you know, I, I, I think this was a necessary step in their evolution and I, I give them full credit for having the guts to, to take it because it, it couldn't have been easy. I'm sure they were, you know, it, it, it was probably, it was probably a rough reception in some regards. The transformation was cathartic for them, but not necessarily their fans. Yeah. I Particularly mean, the feedback from No Reply, Man on the Corner. Well, you, yeah, you've either got people who 
you know, who buy the record for no reply and they hear the rest of it and they go, what, what the hell is this? Or you have people who are like, oh, look at how, you know, archy these guys are. But then they got these sellout songs. I mean, there's, the, the two parts to this record probably satisfied no one. Mm -hmm. Paul, did you get that? I got that. I like it. Because I feel like I'm not satisfied. <laughs> for, for me, um, sonically, I was so challenged this past week. Um, I don't have perfect ears. I certainly don't have perfect pitch. But that tuning on the synths and the abuse of the gated verb really wore me down. It's like a... Um, uh, sonic wear down. Like, I, I don't know, Paul, if you ever like mixed a live metal show that just went one band too long and you just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, God, I was so pumped for the first two bands, man. Hey, fucking great dude. And then I just lost my shit. And that, that's what th this, the Abacab is the equivalent of a, a five band metal show for me. I'm just mm. really exhausted and I don't feel like the intonation is pure. I feel like Tony has violated my spirit and I need to go back and listen to uh, chamber music just to get my sense of pitch back. Then Ken, I recommend that you take whatever steps you feel are necessary <laughs> to prepare yourself to continue on this journey. At this point, and it's amazing to say this, we only have four Genesis albums left. Whew. And that you know, it's it's amazing. And when you think about where we still have to go in this musical journey, it's quite remarkable. Hmm. So, I think this is probably as good a place to leave it. So, gentlemen, as always, I will thank you for your thoughts on this and uh, putting in the required effort. And I look forward to next episode when we can discuss. Genesis, home to perhaps one of my favorite Genesis songs of all time. That's oh, worth it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we welcome, solicit, and look forward to your thoughts, your comments, your feedback, and your questions. Feel free to reach us out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at Progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A on all of those, or you can search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is, as always, available for download and subscription on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.